0: It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.
1: Coming up on episode number 68 of Sports Day Plus, in mere seconds, it is a continuation of my conversation with renowned sports gambler Billy Walters. Just like with yesterday, I'm spending the full hour with Billy discussing his wild life as detailed in his book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027ESPN. Billy Walters is a highly successful real estate and golf course developer, philanthropist, and yes, one of the most successful sports gamblers of all time. But with those highs also come plenty of lows, and as you heard me talking with Billy yesterday, he is not afraid to talk about either. Now, if you missed yesterday's conversation want to go back and listen to the full thing, you can do so by checking out my website, booksonpod.com. Books on Pod is the name of the podcast. That's uh, what you can search wherever you listen to podcasts to get to my podcast and that episode. And now, part two of my chat with Billy Walters. How did you make a sworn enemy out of Steve Wynn with the spin of a wheel?
0: I was playing poker at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas, and a couple of guys approached me, and uh, they had this idea that they could beat roulette wheels. And they were explaining to me about biased roulette wheels, and they were looking for someone to put up a bankroll, and they were going to play roulette, and whatever money they won, they would split it with me. I knew the guys. They were a couple of con men, so I said, well, thanks, but no thanks. But it did interest me, so I went and bought a roulette wheel, disassembled a roulette wheel. And what I realized was a roulette wheel is... It's like an automobile, like an airplane. Uh, you know, it's made up of mechanical parts. And if they weren't maintained properly or they got worn, you weren't going to have a bias in a roulette wheel. So, what I did, I started going to collect numbers on roulette wheels. I would get like 3,000 numbers. And then I had a software program, a little computer program that we'd written, and we would uh, run those 3,000 numbers to see if there was a bias. And what I learned was, Trey, almost every roulette wheel has a bias, but finding one that has enough of a bias to be able to overcome the house odds, that's the whole key. So if I saw one that looked like it could have that big of a bias, I would go back and I'd get like 27,000 more numbers. Then I would run a computer program on 30,000 numbers to try to get a stronger indication whether there was a bias there or not. And then the wheels that I identified that I felt like have a bias I would play those wheels. Now there are two kinds of roulette wheels. there's a, what we call a French wheel which has one zero and then there's an American wheel that has two zeros. Any kind of a big player, the casinos in the US, they will bar one of the zeros. If it lands on one of the zeros, it's no bet you spin it over. And even with the one zero the house has the odds are still enormous in their favor i found a wheel first at the golden nugget in las vegas i was playing poker there in the poker room matter of fact i was playing poker with steve i saw a wheel there that i thought i could beat and i told chip and i told doyle uh, both about this and i said you guys want to partner up and do this and i thought they were going to laugh me completely out of the uh, golden nugget they both started laughing so hard they said well everybody in the world's tried to do this and i said well this is different i, I bought the wheel myself i I disassembled it and I, you know, I had Mike to write me a computer program and I ran numbers and these wheels are biased. Ah ha ha ha. Well, so anyway, I went and played the roulette wheel at the Golden Nugget and uh, first time I played it, I've been playing for about eight hours and uh, it's like four o'clock in the morning and I'm down to my last fifty thousand dollars. I thought, well, boy, you big idiot. <laughs> anyway, the numbers started hitting and finally won my money back and uh, I won a small amount of money. You know, I played for 20 some hours the first time, but I'm playing poker with Steve almost every night. And then we're playing golf at the Las Vegas Country Club. Well, I started getting numbers in other casinos and I started getting numbers in Lake Tahoe, started getting numbers in Atlantic City. And I went to the Super Bowl of Poker in uh, Lake Tahoe in 1986. It was Amarillo Slims. Basically, it's a tournament of champions. It's, uh, it was a tournament after the World Series. While I was there, I ran the numbers on the roulette wheel there at Caesars in Tao and I saw it was a good wheel, too. Well, after the tournament was over, I went back, and uh, I won $2 million airplane roulette. And then I ran some numbers on some hotels in Atlantic City. The Golden Nugget Atlantic City, there were a couple of roulette wheels there that I thought I could beat. So, I'm playing golf with Steve one day at the country club, and I drove him back home. He lived in the Scotch 80s, and we made a game. I had to put up a million dollars. I could bet a $1,000 to a number, but I had to put up a million bucks. So, uh, I chartered a plane, and Susan and I flew to Atlantic City, I put a million dollars in the cage, and I went over to play the roulette wheel. I asked Boone Waysen, the guy running the casino at the time, I said, which one of these zeros are you going to borrow? He said, well, we can't or any zero in Atlantic City, it's against the law. I said, that's impossible. I made the game with Steve Wynn, he owns a hotel. Well, Billy, you know, said, Steve probably didn't understand the New Jersey game loans. So I said, well. So he called, they call the gaming people in New Jersey, they wouldn't make an exception. Well, I wasn't gonna play the roulette wheel with two zeroes, although I felt like I could beat it, but I wasn't gonna play it with two zeroes because I didn't wanna wake people up that I could beat a roulette wheel with two zeroes. So I go back over to the bar, and I sat down, and this was when I was drinking, and I started drinking Corona beer. Well, I drank a case of Corona beer. I got (laughs) face dropped. I went back over to the blackjack table, and I started playing blackjack, and I lost the entire million dollars. (laughs) Wow. I got on a plane the next day. You can imagine the sermon I gave myself on the way back to Las Vegas. But anyway, I get back to Las Vegas, so a couple days later, Steve's called me. Hey, let's play golf. I said, okay. So we go play golf. A couple of weeks later, he says, why don't we go back up? Said, uh, they're going to have the U.S. Open at cop And said, we can take the helicopter over to the golf firm. I said, Steve, I can't play it in roulette wheel and in said it with two zeros. I, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, I figured out how we can do it. He said, uh, we'll keep track of the amount of time you play. Whatever the per is, a percentage that means, I'll give you your half of it back. And he said, that's the equivalent of one zero. I said, well, that's good enough for me. So this time I went up, I put up $2 million. I could bet $2,000 to a number. So I went up and uh, the first day I won $3.2 million. And uh, back in those days, they closed the casinos in Las Vegas. I mean, in uh, Atlantic City at 4 o'clock in the morning. And they didn't reopen them until the next morning. So I played at 4 o'clock on 3.2 million winner. Close closed the casino. I think I'm going to go to Shellacock the next day with Steve to watch U.S. Open. Well, I get up. Steve's already gone. He left me there. I'm, I'm sure he thought, well, I lose the money back. So I go back down there, and the roulette wheel's still there. And I started playing again. And although I won, I mean, I wasn't nearly as uh, effective the second day as I was the first day. But I probably played about eight, nine hours. And uh, I'm 600,000 winner from that day. And uh, the place is just covered up. Uh, I got people look looking up underneath underneath this roulette wheel. I got they're looking at everything. Some guy comes over, sits down next to me, he's the head of the game and control in New Jersey. And of course there wasn't anything wrong with the roulette wheel. They could have put a gun to my head. And I didn't do anything to the roulette wheel. And uh, but anyway, so it's about five o'clock in the afternoon and uh, I put up two million, I won three point eight million, so I decided, well, maybe it's time to go on home. So they wrote me a check for 5.8 million. I got on a plane, flew back home. And then, uh, and then from that moment forward, <clears throat> Wynn and I've had a, we've had a, a, a strained relationship. Let's put it that way. It was fine when I lost a million dollars up there playing blackjack. It was fine when I lost a half a million in, uh, the Golden Nugget uh, months earlier playing Baccarat or Blackjack when I was drunk, but when I won the $3.8 playing roulette, uh, he's never forgiven me for that. He sent that wheel to the manufacturer, Paul and Son, who he bought it from, and they told him there was nothing wrong with the wheel, it was perfectly fine. I was also told by people who worked there that he sent the wheel to NASA. He had them to cut it up to see if there was something wrong with it. There wasn't anything wrong with it. And uh, so
1: that's, that's
0: my story with myself and Brother Steve Webb.
1: He is legendary sports gambler Billy Walters, has told his incredible life story in the memoir, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. And he is nice enough to talk with me about that for the full hour. That started last night, continues tonight right here on Sports Day Plus. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Coming up, more of my conversation with legendary sports gambler Billy Walters about his new memoir, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. First, though, I wanted to let you know about a friend of mine. His name is Steve, and he is the guy responsible for Pest Wranglers. Their website is PestWranglers.com. And right now is a great time to get out in front of mosquito season. That's right. It is right around the corner now. And Pest Wranglers offers eco-friendly treatments that do not target bees, nor butterflies, and it's non toxic to birds and mammals as well. It's effective for up to a month and it kills mosquitoes that transmit all sorts of deadly diseases. Works against insecticide resistant mosquitoes as well, kills the adults, and prohibits larvae from maturing. It is field validated and published results in lots of different scientific journals. The mixture that is used by pest wranglers to get rid of those mosquitoes. Cannot recommend them enough. Steve is uh, an awesome guy who does a great job of taking care of those pest problems, and he values relationships. He values people. That's why he makes sure his employees understand how to deliver top-notch customer service to go along with that pest control service as well. Go to the website, PestWranglers.com, to get yourself on the schedule with Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers. Now, continuation of my conversation with legendary sports gambler Billy Walters on his new memoir, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. The golf aspect of this story is, I think, an underrated one. One, you've been playing golf for four decades now betting on golf, but also learning how to get better at the game. And you've had a bunch of really good teachers help you with that throughout that time. What is your favorite golf tip?
0: Oh, my favorite golf tip is, you know, keep it simple. I mean, I think most any teacher will probably tell you whether it's a turn pro or whether it's an amateur. Uh, 99% of the time a player has a problem. It's any, we'll call it setup set up being his alignment, his grip, uh, and that's typically where 99% of your problem is, your posture, your your setup, and, uh, and, and the way you grip the golf club. You know, uh, I played golf for a lot of years and never took a lesson. It was just mm. real simple, it was natural. When I started taking lessons, uh, before I knew it, uh, I got so confused. <laughs> I'm standing over a golf ball, I can't pull the club back. <laughs> And then finally I realized, uh, you know, that I'd gotten a little, uh, i would taken, i would taken a few too many of the pills of, out of a bottle. I, I need to put some back to make this thing a little simpler. So, but, uh, it just shows you how, what my lack of talent is. You're right. I work with the best teachers in the entire world and, uh, I'm an okay player, but I'm not a great player.
1: Still betting, uh, Tens, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on the course at times, though.
0: No, not really. I haven't done that for a long time. Okay. The, uh, okay. No, no. You know, for a period of time in my life, you know, golf was a huge part of my of the way I made a living. Yeah. And, uh, but when I quit the sports betting and, uh, I'm sorry, I quit poker and quit all the other stuff, uh, other than sports betting, I continued to play golf, but, uh, there's been a few times maybe since then I've played you know, some real high rounds of golf. Doyle and and I got a good friend of mine in Florida. His name is Dewey Tomko. And uh, they put a deal together. uh, It was televised, actually, on ESPN. It was a nine-hole, three-man scramble. Hmm. And uh, 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 we played for a million dollars a hole. Just somehow, I don't know, Dewey and Doyle got on the same team. Hmm. And... uh, and then the second day we, we had a deal where it was two man teams and we played for two hundred thousand dollars. And outside of that, I really hadn't had uh, what I would call any big golf games since you know since uh, the late '80s. So I play golf today, and a lot of guys I play with uh, we don't play for anything. I mean, I I, won't, I never ask anybody to play for anything because of who I am. Uh, but most of the guys will play for anywhere from a five to the twenty dollar off. Some guys won't play for a hundred or two hundred or five hundred, but that's very rare. And uh but sometimes I'll just go out with a caddy and practice all day. I I, I love playing golf, man. It's uh they uh so if I never get another nickel on golf, I, I could play golf. It, I don't I, I guess I've gambled so high in my life, but a few bucks on something is is it it I don't know. I probably, I probably don't get the buzz out of it I used to. And frankly, if I'm playing somebody, I'm gonna try to beat their brains out, whether they are playing for nothing or not, money or not. You know.
1: Understandable, and it's also really cool. I think that uh, everybody should have at least one personal sports highlight where you're actually on that field of play, and you get to uh, to feel what it's like to be a champion. Your moment came on the golf course, winning the uh, 2008. Pebble Beach Pro-Am, that was, uh, what, what a cool moment that had to have been for you to uh, come out victorious there. It was, you
0: know, I played in a lot of um, Pro-Am's, I played in a lot of member guest tournaments. Uh, this tournament uh, was so appealing to me because everyone who goes to this tournament, I mean, man, they're grinding, they're really trying hard, and, and it's not a tournament that, you know, some guys go, I mean, they really watch the handicaps there, they have a uh they have a marshal that follows you around on every hole. You know, they uh it's it's a well, well ran tournament and it's a very competitive tournament from an amateur standpoint. So that's why it was so appealing to me. Uh ironically, the year I won it almost didn't go. Uh I've been doing sports the entire fall and I hadn't hit a golf ball. And when I quit when sports season started, I, I had developed uh man, I don't know why it's never happened to me before in my life, but I was, I wasn't putting well and putting is like the smallest part of my game. Hmm. And then, uh, just before the, we were supposed to go to Pebble Beach, I got the flu. So I started to pull out and Susan said, ah, no, i said, you feel better? You know? So I go up there, I haven't hit a ball and I'm still not a hundred percent, but I went up the putting green uh, and I'm still not putting well. There was a guy up there. If you go to any of the pro tournaments, you know, you'll see different manufacturers up there. They've got their putters out for for the players to try and the amateurs to try. So I go up there and it's the first time I saw the the big grip on the putter, Uh, uh, KJ Choi at the time used a putter grip and it was made by a company called Superstroke. So I go up there. The guy lets me hit a few putts with it. Well, man, I'm making everything that I'm, I'm standing over with this putter. And uh, so I said, look, i need, uh, I like for you put one of these grips on my putter. He said, oh, we can't do that. Just the only one we got. I said, well, you know, at the time I had seven golf courses, so we were buying a lot of equipment. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. How many these putter grips would I have to buy in order for you to put one on my, on my putter? well i can't do it i can't do it so he called his boss anyway they relented and they they give me a putter grip they put it on my putter and uh and i know what happened now that big grip on that putter it took my hands out of the putter and it forced me to put you know with my big muscles and my shoulders which mm. that's what i've always done that week at pebble beach i don't know if you've ever played any golf at pebble beach but the greens are very small and they're pretty treacherous i never had one three putt and the entire week at pebble beach now didn't have one <clears throat> i mean i putted so good it was unbelievable wow and uh the best score i shot uh, uh, was like 83 84 or whatever it was and and uh but i'm playing from the white tees at pebble beach and the other golf courses which gave me a huge advantage because you know we've talked about this before you know Golf courses I play, wherever I play, I play the tips, even my age, or I play the setback. I play a long golf course. So I play the ball down, you know, I, you know, and I play by the rules of golf. I don't roll the ball. I don't do those, you know. So my handicap is, is it was based upon that. Well, they put me in a golf tournament and they moved me up to the white tees. Uh, I mean, it's like a, you know you got a, a huge advantage over some guy who plays there every day. So although I wasn't playing well, I was hitting the ball, most white tees. Well, heck, I meant wedges in almost every green. And although I dug a lot of wedges and I didn't hit them too good, but, uh, and this uh, the guy that I played with, I, I got to tell you this one last story. His name is Freddie Jacobson. Funny, funny dude. I, I, I liked him a lot and we had so much fun together, but, uh, He's the streakiest pro I've ever played with in my life. <clears throat> that week, he he had 16 birdies. He had two eagles. One day at Pebble Beach, he birdied seven holes in a row. Now, that year, there were two guys that went into a playoff, Vijay Singh and, and, and Lowry. They were nine under par for the tournament. Freddie, had, Freddie was twenty under. He had sixteen birdies and two eagles, and he finished a tournament about two or three under par. So, any other tournament, you look at any pro player that wins a tournament, you know, at the very most they have maybe is, oh, one or two bogeys. This guy, this guy, had sixteen birdies and two eagles, and he finished six shots behind the lead. It was, but every hole it seemed like he was out of. I would either park getting the shot or. I birdied actually a couple of them getting a shot, and that's how we won the tournament. Hmm. But as you can imagine, a professional gambler from Las Vegas, I mean, when when we won the tournament, and we won the tournament by like 10 shots, I mean, boy, they were doing some howling. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, it has to be a sandbagger. (laughs) Well, the Pebble Beach is credit. You know, they came out and said they were totally happy or satisfied with my handicap. They, they had a marshal follow us around. They, they, they knew how the scores were shot. And and, 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 and as a matter of fact, they invited me back another year to play. Which, you know, there's history at Pelham Beach. There's guys up there who they feel like have been sandbaggers who won. I won't name anyone, but and they, but they never ever get invited back. Now I got invited back. Uh, but they gave me a guy. Uh, on a good day, I might have been able to beat him myself. <laughs> anyway, I think we finished last of the tournament, but I didn't get invited back, which uh, I really appreciated.
1: Do you ever have any interactions with Bill Murray? He's obviously uh, legendary for taking part in that pro-am. Did you uh, encounter him at all while you were there?
0: No, I've never met Bill Murray. No, I'm sure I haven't.
1: He is renowned sports gambler Billy Walters. We are discussing his excellent new memoir, Gambler Secrets from a Life at Risk. Conversation started last night, continues tonight, and is going to go through this entire hour right here on Sports Day Plus on 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back with legendary sports gambler Billy Walters. He is also a highly successful real estate and golf course developer and philanthropist. Our focus, though, is on the sports gambling side of things because you can imagine somebody who has experienced the highs of sports gambling has experienced plenty of lows as well, and he has no problem talking about those things as he has done in the excellent memoir Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Now, the story of how you eventually uh, came to be found guilty of insider trading in 2017 is just a wild story. There's quite honestly too much for us to go over at all in this conversation right now. But it essentially began with a 2011 interview with 60 Minutes, where at the end of this interview that was a comparative piece on risk-taking that included sports betting, you mentioned to uh, about getting hustled. By Wall Street, shortly after you become the target of an investigation by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York for suspicious trading. Now, the uh, initial investigation did not uh, turn into anything, but they just kept at it. And ultimately, uh, there there was a lot of shenanigans and quite possibly some illegal things happening that led to you uh, getting convicted of insider trading and having to spend 31 months uh, in a federal prison. Now, as you talk about in the book, and as you've probably talked about way too often in the interviews that you've done for this book, if Phil Mickelson, your former friend and betting partner, would have taken the stand and simply told the truth about things, and boy, what a colossal piece of shit that guy is, you probably avoid jail time altogether. But I'm not going to ask you about that, Billy, because you've talked about that entirely too much. What I do want to ask you about, though, is that in retrospect, you feel like you would have found incident uh, innocent if you had just taken the stand in trial. So why did you choose not to take the stand? And how do you think that would have changed things ultimately?
0: Well, knowing what I know now, I think that was really the only chance I had (laughs) not being, uh, not going to prison. As you noted, the jury, there were three main things that the jury never knew before they went by actually four three main things. The jury never knew before they went back to decide, you know, my fate, the, uh, guy who was in charge of the white collar crime unit in New York City, David Chavez for the FBI, uh, who investigated me for three and a half years, who brought uh, his his work. Uh, he's 100% of the reason that I got indicted, him and in the Southern District of New York and working with him. They didn't know that he had been caught violating the law. They didn't know he'd been suspended from the FBI in my case. They didn't know that the judge was residing in, in the courtroom had, uh, advi- had, had, suggested, had recommended he be indicted for, for two criminal felonies. They didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't know that the FBI had 60 days of wiretaps on me and didn't play a one for them. They didn't know any of that. And they didn't know that Phil Mickelson, uh, who they read about in the paper that was going to be in court, who they read about earlier, they didn't know that Phil Mickelson had given two previous interviews to the FBI and had told them emphatically that I did not give him any inside information. Those were the three main things that they did not know when they went back to decide my guilt or innocence. What I underestimated and seriously underestimated was the amount of resentment that that jury uh, had for me because I owned a private airplane, I had multiple homes, I'm a gambler from Las Vegas, I, I didn't know that. I, I guess you're talking about being naive and stupid. I, I guess I was, I guess I should have known that. Uh, my attorneys, there was one witness against me. Uh, and uh, this was a guy that i would known for almost, uh, 50, what, only 15 years at the time. My attorneys had caught him in at least 25 lives. There was nobody in in the courtroom that believed this man and there's, he didn't have any credibility with anyone. I mean, so my attorneys were convinced that if the jury couldn't believe this guy, he was the only witness, there was no way they could convict me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there in the courtroom every day, I saw it. And, and there's no question that this man had no credibility. The 31 months I was in prison, when I look back at this and i said, well, what would I do differently if I had a chance to do it? I had to testify because if I'd have testified, the jury would have known who I was. They would have known my background. Uh, they would have also known when we talked about this stock, when I bought it, and when I sold it, and why I bought it and why I sold it. I could have explained what took place, and they could have understood it. Uh, I didn't do that because you know we've been there three and a half weeks. Uh, The judge had stopped the trial at least 15 times to wake the jury up they were sleeping. That one guy on the jury had already said he's leaving next uh, Monday. He has to go on a business trip. Well, when we were uh, deciding what to do with this, the attorney said, look, we've been three and a half weeks. These people are blinded looking at charts, which they don't understand. And... Mm -hmm. Tom Davis, the witness, no one believes him. He's got no credibility. And these people want to get out of here. We were kind of in the winter months in, in, in New York. And uh, we believe they, if they can't believe him, they can't convict you. We had 23 witnesses set to testify, including me. And it was my decision. That, and, and the bottom line was I said, OK, well, I agree with you. They can't believe me. So we put on five witnesses. Uh I think we put on a pilot. We put on a controller from our company and three stockbrokers that did business with and, uh, got case up. And like I said, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, we all know what that is. Um, You you bet on, you make, you make a decision, you look back at it and you say, well, what could I have done differently to got a different outcome? Well, I know what I would have had to have done differently. I would have had to have testified because during the entire trial, those prosecutors kept. Reminding that jury about my multiple homes, my private plane, me giving my celebrity friends inside information, which they knew wasn't a lie, because the guy they were referring to was Phil Mickelson. They wouldn't call him to testify because they knew what he was going to say. I tried to call him, which he said he would come. And in the 11th hour, his lawyer said, no, he's not going to. If you call him, he's going to take the Fifth Amendment. Well, if someone tells you that they're going to take the Fifth Amendment, you cannot call them. Okay, so they leaked all these stories months earlier and implicated Phil Mickelson. Okay, he's a famous guy. It's, it's in all these newspapers. So when we were uh, impaneling a jury up there and we were asking them questions, uh, you know, prospective jurors, we had two or three people say, was Phil Mickelson going to testify on this trial? Well, everyone in New York was waiting on Phil Mickelson to come in and testify. Well, Phil Mickelson, no, he he don't he don't ever show up to testify. Okay, so you got one witness against me, you got a guy we caught 25 times lying, who nobody believed. And if if Phil Mickelson had testified, I am sure as I'm looking at you, Trey, I wouldn't have gone to prison because Peter walked in there and and simply said what he told the FBI, I did not give him inside information. That jury's going to go out. They got Phil Mickelson, who's a the guy they know, and they got this guy they brought over 25 times line, amongst a number of other things that were reprehensible. So I, don't, I, would, I would have never got convicted. On the other hand, no one I know now, I, I for sure should have testified.
1: So you did spend 31 months locked up in federal prison camp, Pensacola, in the Florida panhandle. How was prison a lot like betting sports?
0: No one's ever asked me that question, so I don't know. I, I walked into Federal Prison Camp, and the uh, I thought I knew what freedom was until I got there, and I lost all of it. And uh, I stayed in an eighteen by twenty-two room with nine other men, uh, with bunk beds, and, and the walls had black mold all over them. And the building was a concrete building, that was built in the '60s. It had no heat in it whatsoever, none. And uh, the chillers ran 24 seven. So in the winter time, you almost froze to death. So Mm -hmm. how how I compare to sports betting? Well, uh, hmm. you gotta have a lot of discipline. There's no question about that. And you gotta have a game plan, which I had a game plan. My game plan was to stay as busy as I could stay And I did. I I was the only guy out of 600 guys there. I was the only guy that had two jobs. And uh, I worked at a laundry and I worked at uh, the Naval base and I mentored a couple dozen men. And, and then on weekends, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, I I was, uh, I was there on visits with people who, who either worked for me or friends who came to see me. But I had a very, uh, 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 very rigid and I had a very uh, precise
1: uh, schedule. We're going to end with this, Billy. You spend two chapters of this book sharing your secrets on becoming insanely successful at sports betting. Not everybody would do something like this. So why did you choose to do so?
0: 10 years ago, Trey, I wouldn't have sold this information for $20 million. Uh, but I'm 77 years old. It's my legacy. Majority of states in the United States now have legalized sports betting. And I remember when I began betting sports, I shared it all in the book. You know, uh, I got addicted. I uh, lost money. I shouldn't have lost. I got myself in financial problems. Uh, I made all kinds of mistakes. And uh, I wanted to share that. I mean, I wanted people to read that because that's what can happen to you. If you're going to bet on sports and you're going to do it as a recreation, you set aside X number of dollars and say, I'm going to lose this money and you're going to have some fun. Great. But if you're going to get involved in sports betting and think you're going to get rich quick, or you're going to get rich period, you're headed for disaster. So I'm concerned that of all these millions of people that have started betting, that they could run in and have some of the same issues that I had as a young man. So I want to share that with them.
1: He's legendary sports gambler Billy Walters. His new book is called Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Coming up, one final segment with Billy right here on Sports Day Plus on 1027 ESPN. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elliott. Final segment with legendary sports gambler Billy Walters has told his story in the memoir, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. he has been nice enough to join me for the last two nights to share some details from that book. If you missed any of this conversation and want to go back and check out the full thing, you can do so through my podcast, Books on Pod. Booksonpod.com is the website, or search Books on Pod wherever you listen to Podcasts. Billy, we were just talking about you sharing some of the most important secrets and you becoming so successful at sports betting, and you do so over two chapters. The first chapter is some of the basic rules of the game, but you get into much greater detail in that second chapter. So what's that second chapter all about?
0: I wrote two chapters. I wrote one for basic strategy for betting. If people just follow that, they're probably still going to lose, they've probably got maybe 2% the worst of it. But I mean, hypothetically, I guess they could win, but you got a chance to win, but you got to follow the basic betting strategy to the T, which is easy to do, anyone can do. And that is when to bet, and what numbers to, to buy half points on, what numbers not to buy half points on, how much to pay for half points. I put all the charts in there that show you exactly what the fair price is to pay for a half point. I put all the charts in there that show you how a spread eleven to ten spread uh, compares to a money line, so you can see which one's the best deal. And I put all the true odds in there on parlays and teasers. Most people, I think, that bet sports are under the assumption that all the bets you make are eleven to ten. You're risking one ten to win one. Well, in parlays and teasers, that's not true. A lot of parlays and teasers, you're laying a dollar thirty, $1.30, a dollar thirty-five. You got no chance. I mean, no chance to win. So the basics betting strategy is going to educate you on, on, on the main things that you need to understand to bet sports. For people who think maybe they want to be a professional handicapper or a professional better, a masterclass section of that, believe it or not, Trey, it took me six months to write that to get it down to where hopefully people can follow it. It's fairly complicated, but I think we have it now where most people could probably follow it. And that's exactly what I do. It's exactly how I do it. And when I wrote the book, I can tell you that is a 100% up to date at the end of last Super Bowl. There's nothing that I know about sports that isn't in there. All the various factors that involve games, travel time, weather, surfaces, I've included all those in there along with the value of those. The home field advantages, I've put all that stuff in there. If you're betting sports, it's undoubtedly – going to give you the only chance in the world that you've got to win. If you've got one bookmaker and you're signed up with some guy that paid you something to sign up with him, and you're not looking at lines from any place else, you have zero chance to win. Zero. You may win one bet, or you may win 10 bets, but over a long period of time, you have zero chance to win. In order to best sports, you've got to get the right numbers, and you, you've got to pay a fair price for things. If you overpay for it, you got no chance. Uh, so that eleven to ten, that you think you're laying. If you go out and you lay a bad number, you're not laying eleven to ten. You're laying a dollar twenty or you're laying a dollar thirty. You're only getting eleven to ten if you go out and you get the right numbers. And I put a strategy in there that allows I can pretty much tell you nine times out of ten on a Monday where the is going to go to on a Saturday. And I've shared that all, all that with you. Those strategies in there. And why you should bet on certain games early, and why you should wait on certain games to bet late—all that's in the book. Law, wanted answer to your question, Trey. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I'm 77. I'm not going to live forever. It's—it's it's my legacy. Since last season was over until this season began, these teams—they're trading players. You got a lot of new players. You got a lot of new coaches. So you have to make those changes from the end of last season to the beginning of this season, and then every week. Players that are playing injured or you got players are out and and there's a backup that's taking their place. Well, I tell you in the book how to value all the different players. And I tell you the adjustments to make when a player's out and when a sub's in, how to adjust your line. It's all in there. But with all these new states that you have legalized sports, and, and honestly, Trey, this is a dream come true for me because in 1990... The FBI came to my home in Las Vegas, arrested me and my wife, Susan. They put leg irons on her, handcuffs on me, took us out in front of our neighbors and arrested us for betting on sports in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, today, the majority of the states in the United States, you got legalized sports betting. And I can see a lot of positives that can come out of this, but I can also see a lot of negatives that could potentially come out of this. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, the industry, they've got a responsibility instead of just some lip service to try to find people that are dealing with addiction problems, the NC2A and the NFL, they've got a real responsibility. And I'm not talking about one meeting. They need to meet with these young men on a continual basis. And they got to point out to them how important it is that they don't bet on these games or any other games and how and why it's important, how it affects their team, their teammates, how it affects their career. Cause let's face it, these are kids. Or they're very very young men, and and and, you know they they're very competitive. They want to bet on themselves, but what they don't realize is that one little bet can destroy their entire career, or it can send out the wrong message. So the NFL, the NC two A, we're going to have betting. I think that's great, but we've got to get in front of these people on a regular basis, and we got to remind them over and over and over. The good news is you got more transparency now. The sports betting we've ever had because everybody bets they have an account they got all your personal information all that stuff's there that's good but the nc2a these colleges and uh and the nfl all the professional leagues nba everyone they got a responsibility to sit down with these players and point out to them you know it, it'll destroy their career and, and it'll not only destroy their career what it'll do their team and their teammates
1: Yeah, it feels like a whole lot of posturing by the sports leagues right now, if I'm being completely honest. And I'm with you. I think that legalizing sports gambling uh, was an obvious step versus demonizing it and pushing things into the uh, underbelly of society. But we're also at a weird time because it's as easy as making a sports bet as just punching a couple of uh, spots on the screen of your cell phone in order to do so in a lot of states. So it's tricky, and the responsibility is – Of course, it's on the individual, but it is also on these sports leagues that stand to make millions, if not billions of dollars on the partnerships that they have uh, with these sports betting entities, too. Yeah, I agree. I do want to end with this, Billy, because we cannot understate uh, the the philanthropic side of uh, you uh, and your wife and everything that you try and do in giving back to the community things like Opportunity Village, but uh, your focus now based on your time spent in prison also has to do with prison reform. Uh, How are you going about trying to make things better uh, inside prisons in the not-too-distant future?
0: Well, when I was in prison, I mentored a couple dozen men. I had visited people in prison before, although I had hired people out of prison. I really didn't understand the impact that prison was having on some people's lives. These two dozen men that i mentored, some of them have been in prison 20-25 years, they didn't even know how to use a cell phone. They had no job skill sets whatsoever. Uh, the, the entire time they were in prison, the only thing they learned how to do was be a better criminal. They were going home, they had, they had no job skill set at all, and the closer they would get to the door, the door being their release, the more time I would spend with them oh, on and. A lot of these guys would break down, they would start crying. Not one of those people wanted to go back to prison, but almost every one of them felt like they were probably gonna go back to prison because they had no way to make a living and to support their families. So when I got out of prison, I went to see Senator Harry Reid, who was a friend of mine. I wanted to put vocational schools in the federal prisons and offered to put up the first $2 million. Senator Reid was working with the Biden administration and unfortunately, Senator Reid, he passed away. When he passed away, the former sheriff of Clark County, his name is Bill Young, he said, Billy, the, he said, probably the best reentry program in the United States is right here in Las Vegas. And he said, uh, it's called Hope for Prisoners. He said, I'd like to introduce you to John Ponder, the guy that runs it. I said, okay. Now, this program in Las Vegas, is the most successful program of its kind in the United States. Wow uh it's an 18-month program there's only a seven percent recidivism rate seven and it's been in effect since 2012. they had a graduation there john invited me down once, so i go down to the first graduation the graduation is held at metropolitan police headquarters in las vegas
1: Hmm.
0: i went there there were about 75 metropolitan police officers the sheriff was there the mayor was there the district attorney was there the head of corrections for the state of Nevada was there, uh, and there were about three hundred people there who are serving as mentors in Las Vegas. Uh, they were there, and there are fifty police officers. that were there. They're serving as mentors to these people, and I saw the graduating class come out with caps and gowns on, and I, I couldn't believe my eyes. And uh, so I, I said, "Man, this is this is this is what we want to do." And then uh, when a graduation's hell, they have a job fair. Every one of those people that are coming out of those graduations they have a job the day they graduate. Every one of them do, it's been great.
1: It's an incredible idea and I think a win-win for everyone, not just the uh, individuals most affected, but society on the whole, because we have a uh, shortage of people who are able to work the trades right now. So it uh, is a huge boost. Uh, to that uh, general population once they, uh, once they get out of prison and can uh, re- reintroduce themselves to uh, day-to-day life. He is Billy Walters. The new book is titled Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk and get it now wherever books are sold. Billy, thank you so much for the time today and uh, thank you for this entertaining and informative book. A uh, really enjoyable read and I, I, I really did enjoy the conversation today.
0: Likewise, Trey, I really enjoyed uh, visiting with you and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.
1: One more reminder that if you missed any of this conversation over the last two shows, you can go to my podcast, Books on Pod. Booksonpod.com is the website. Search Books on Pod wherever you listen to podcasts to check out the full thing. And that is it for another week's worth of shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you on Tuesday. In the meantime, hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.